I would agree, and I would add kind of two twists to it. I would say one, they don't just market on a B2C level, they market on a B2H, business to human level. So they really know their people, who they sell to. And that's something that they and other companies that I feel successfully do that type of marketing are exceptional at. Today, I'm joined by Joel Premack, who's a marketing specialist at Messina Group Consulting. Joel, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you, George. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm doing well. I can't complain. You know, I'm in the Turks and Caicos right now, which is about an hour away from Miami. So it's, it's easy to come here for the weekend and uh, re-energize. Um, so th- first of all, thank you so much for uh, getting up early. I know it's about 8 a.m. And actually, actually, I think it's 7 a.m. your time, right? It is 7 a.m. Okay, well, extra kudos to you, bro. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, why don't you take a quick second to introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about you know your career background and how'd you get into marketing? Yeah, so after college, graduating with a bachelor's in PR and minors in entrepreneurship and urban and regional analysis. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I took a couple internships, one of which brought me out to LA for a few months. Um, I didn't really love it out there. So I came back to Chicago, joined a media company here and fell in love with tech. And then through that, that snowballed into another great opportunity with me. Uh, So I was able to join this company based here in Chicago called Sales Assembly. And that's where I found my passion, which was B2B tech and fell in love with the space and got to meet a lot of amazing people um, as well as companies. And then through that, I actually uh, had worked with Messina Group as a partner of ours during my time there. And as it turned out, they were looking to grow their marketing team and expand that function within their company. And I happen to be the right person at the right time. So that's how I got into the scene group. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. You mentioned like you found your passion in B2B marketing just because like I get it, man. Like I've been passionate about B2B. I didn't get passionate about B2C. I tried a B2C thing. So like, I don't know, this is hmm, 2004. And then we sort of formalized it in 2005. So like a B2C online community for travel kind of thing. And it sucked. It was really hard. Like I couldn't control. It didn't feel like I could remotely control my destiny. And uh, as a salesperson, as particularly as a direct salesperson, I just wasn't stoked. And when I got into SaaS and this was 08 or so, I just fell in love. Like, what do you think it is about B2B specifically that gets people really passionate? Obviously there's a lot of uh, passionate people that we know in this category. Yeah, definitely. Um, For me, at least I view it as a hidden gem. I think that outside of Salesforce and maybe a handful of other very large companies, people don't really understand what it takes to build a technology company and therefore the companies that power the companies that we interact with daily. 
-hmm. So you would never know about reprise. You would never know about Pendo. You would never know about Gainsight. You would never know about Upwork, maybe. You would never know about Sprout Social, Active Campaign, Lessonly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think, honestly, maybe the biggest thing to really happen in B2B recently was Gong doing a Super Bowl commercial. I think that that was like mind blowing for B2B SaaS and like actually put it in front of consumers on a national, in a few cities, I should say, level though. Um, but outside of those handful of like companies that are just so large, it's almost hard not to know that they exist. You mm -hmm. don't really hear about the rest very often. Absolutely. So to me, it was just like a hidden gem. Absolutely. Well, you know, if you think about Gong and what they've done, it's like they took a, a very B2C, it looks like, at least from my perspective, it looks like they took a very B2B, or sorry, B2C approach uh, to marketing, right? And, you know, I think also the size of the business, right? Like Gong is not IBM. You saw IBM and Microsoft in recent years start to, you know, do advertising that was that at that scale. And so I, I agree with you. I thought it was pretty exciting for our space. Um, we'll see who can actually afford it too. <laughs> moving forward. Those Super Bowl commercials are not, you know, super affordable or like attribution on those things. Like how do you actually really do attribution on TV commercials, right? In the way that yeah. we can doing, you know, traditional marketing, uh, digital marketing stuff. So I don't think that like Gong cares so much either about attribution necessarily. Again, I don't know the, you know, internal discussions, but I think they are okay with doing brand stuff, right? And just saying, we're going to do a bunch of stuff and if we can track it, great. If not, we just know it's good for the brand. So that, yeah. uh, right. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree. And I would add kind of two twists to it. I would say one, they don't just market on a B2C level, they market on a B2H, business to human level. So they really know their people, who they sell to. And that's something that they and other companies that I feel successfully do that type of marketing are exceptional at. Drift is probably the other biggest player who crushes business to human marketing, I think. Um, and then two, I would say that both Drift and Gong, again, kind of big players in the space, but do something else exceptionally well. They create raving fans. And with raving fans, the affinity for brand that sing your like company that you love on TV during a Super Bowl, that's huge affinity. You cannot really measure that like power of like that relationship right there to seeing something so huge and then again they also do tie in with like a lot of like social things too so i know that they were doing a social giveaway on linkedin for um t-shirts that were like gong had specially designed for example for their super bowl as like x number of people who i think shared a specific post first got a shirt um and then they've done billboards before. And it literally was, you had to go onto Gong's website and find the billboards that they had done and then screenshot it and then share it on LinkedIn. Then you had to tag specific people 
Um, so I think that they're measuring things in terms of social, not necessarily, you're right, like the whole impact of a commercial is hard. Mm -hmm. But there's the affinity that you get at a human level, and then there's the tangible things that you're doing through giveaways or whatever on social. Um, so I think that that's at least a helpful way that they found to kind of merge the two of we're going to do something big and we're going to do something fun on social. And then it turns into essentially like a gong takeover of LinkedIn if you're super in that space of revenue marketing or uh, sales or customer experience, customer success, because those are both Gong and Drift would be two types of tools that you're using almost daily, I would imagine, if not daily. Yeah, totally. Well, let's talk a little bit about this certification program that, speaking of Drift, uh, that you participated in around virtual events. I mean, I love events. Virtual events are seeming to, for me, it makes sense that they're here to stay. And not that physical events won't come back. I just think that there's it's just too easy and there's too much value for you to do a virtual event that's even attached to a physical event. And, and so, you know, if you were to think about some of the key takeaways that you uh, that you took from this certification program and shout out to David Cancel and those folks over there at Drift that just do such an incredible job. If you were to think about some of these takeaways, what would those takeaways be uh, for the audience folk, uh, members? Yeah. Uh, so the first one would definitely be the platform is that you use to host the event is definitely part of the attendance experience equation. So don't forget that. Um, there is an approximate 10% lift in using a chatbot versus a form to gather registrations uh, for your event. And think about it, it's just so much frictionless. And then you can use a clear bit of Zoom info, a LinkedIn sales navigator, et cetera, to enrich that data around that one business email. So if you just get that one piece, you can get that whole circle around them pretty well. Uh, the third thing is, Post-event, there are always three types of audiences. There's the attendees, there are the no-shows, and then there are the people who didn't even register but can still enjoy that content through on-demand, which is part of the beauty of virtual events. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, if, if you think about like the chatbot strategy, any any tips that you have for folks that you've seen, you know, in terms of being able to to use chatbots to drive that ten percent lift that you talked about around uh, virtual events? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are two key elements when it, for me, at least, when it comes to chatbots. One is being extremely conversational and human, which for at least this drift event, um, I registered for a drift event recently and attended. Um, it's just super easy. It's super easy to register. They don't ask for a lot of information. And then compounded by, it's super just casual. It's not rigid. You wouldn't want to talk to your friend who's being all like stiff and like proper when you're talking about something hopefully fun to you. Um, it's just not the way that the world would work or should work really in my eyes. So why would you do that when you're trying to get people to attend an event and you're trying to make it fun? You shouldn't, or at least you hopefully wouldn't. Um, yeah. 
You know, I totally agree with you. You know what I mean? There's a couple things that you keep mentioning. And one of those is being human. You know, like, I get it, dude. Like, we're, it's so weird because we're moving into this like automation, AI thing, et cetera. But at the same time, we're saying, let's be more human, let's be more personalized but let's use technology to actually do that it's super interesting it's any any reasons why that like being more human is so much more powerful yeah i mean i think for me it's realizing that it's b2b is hitting this point right now and we're quite literally living through it i think of you're you're realizing as a marketer who's in b2b that you don't market to a company that is soulless and has no emotions, it has no life, it has nothing else outside of the sole fact of making money for shareholders, its employees, and its bottom line. That's like non-existent anymore. You are realizing that there are people, they have lives outside of work, they have, they have other commitments, they have pains and responsibilities within their role, and now is kind of that perfect time to be human and have um, empathy, especially in your marketing, which I think is really interesting. And I'm going to do a little shout out uh, to Pat Timmons for Feel Something. It's a book on empathy marketing that is coming out this summer. So you can pre-order it now. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. So very excited. Awesome. I love that empathy marketing. That sounds like my type of book. I just, I love the human piece. I just, I always get uh, hurt. I, I think that's probably the emotion that I feel when I, when I experience like a very cold brand. Um, and how do I experience that? Well, through yeah. the sales rep or the customer success or support team, right? And it just yeah. really hurts me actually. I'm, I, I get so pissed off and I'm like, well, why am I pissed off? And I sort of deconstruct it. And I was like, mm -hmm. I find that I'm hurt. And I find that I'm hurt because I feel like they're not talking to me like a human. And so that's why I wanted to bring that up because it really resonates with me. And you'd be surprised how people react. And you, you, you know, as a customer success rep or support rep, you know, you might have a customer on the other side is upset and be being super triggered and aggressive and all that. And you should ask yourself, why is that the case? Well, am I treating them like a human? And I think if, if you can s definitively say yes, then, you know, okay, dig in and try to figure it out. Maybe they're a psychopath or something, but mm -hmm. if not, if you're, if you're not sure that, that you are communicating or treating them like a human, then you know then think twice think about how how that messaging is coming across you know and those sort of things and and i think it's totally fine to use technology these chatbots and things of that nature to be able to to drive or uh, be more efficient or to drive the message uh, but at some point get that human involved right and uh, and i think it'll it'll really move the needle joe if you think about virtual events like they've definitely turned into well the only way for the most part that we do events now yeah 
and the primary responsibility for the field marketer, event marketer, right? And, you know, if you were to think about sort of the, the, the difficulties now, just because like everybody's doing them, you know, how do you stand out, right? We have this Zoom fatigue that, uh, that is real, right? And I think it's partially humans complaining, you know, they just, we just love to complain about shit. And, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, I get it. It, it. it is a real thing, you know, this Zoom fatigue thing. But at the, at the end of the day, I think so is going to like a million physical meetings, right? Like, how does that suck, right? We got to run from one meeting to the other, et cetera. You can't really actually get anything done. So, you know, I don't want to like decrease the impact of Zoom, uh, that Zoom fatigue idea. But how do you drive also like attendance with all these variables uh, that you have to consider? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing for me is uh, just be different. And I mean this through the type of events that you're hosting, the platforms that you're using to actually host the events, the content, make sure that the content's extremely valuable to your audience that you're trying to attract to it, whether it's CFOs, because you know that they're a common person on that buying committee. So like that content should be all the stuff that you talk about when you're on the phone with them and you can get that pretty much from your, if you use a gong or a chorus or whatever type of call recording tool, you should hopefully be able to see like, here's what CFOs always ask for. Here are the top five points. We're gonna throw these things into a virtual event and we're gonna invite 30, 50, 100, however many CFOs you want in your target market. Um, I would say perfect example of this is a recent event that Postal.io and uh, Second City based here in Chicago did, and they did a sales and marketing roast, which was really funny. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to join live, but I did see some of the promo videos and like Kyle Lacey and Scott Barker, both like dressed up and kind of like were mocking each other. Literally, they were roasting each other in like a promo video. So even the promo was different for a different type of event for this audience that needs and likes something fun and different sales and marketing leaders were all about that. Um, so I think that that was something that they did extremely well. And then I think that there's this interesting mix of you, of course, want to have attendees at your event. Yes. I will never dispute that, but the beauty about a live or excuse me, a virtual event is that you can have attendees live, but then you also get on demand. So if you're recording this, then you can cut it up into a diff billion different pieces. You can just have it on your website as another available resource. And then you can see the percentage of, here's how many people we had live, which were awesome, like great conversions and everything. But we got this huge number of people who also saw it on our website or our reps were emailing it out via their sales engagement tool, or we included it in a recent email that was just out to our, with our newsletter or something. And the shelf life of that one event is now stretched out significantly longer in terms of the content usage than ever before. Um, and then I think that the last point to fighting Zoom's fatigue, excuse me, um, is just using other platforms. Personally, I have two favorite platforms. 
one from being a host. I love Whereby for like smaller events. It's a super clean um, and it just honestly makes me happy. It's nothing like Zoom or Teams or some of these other just platforms that you stare at and use daily. So it really switches it up. Uh, and then my favorite virtual event platform that I've attended, at least an event on is Goldcast mm, okay. because it's just creates like an amazing experience. It's super clean. It's easy to use. And frankly, it's just pleasing to your eye. So it's not like you're staring at a screen of split right down the line of here's one box, here's another box. Like, it's just, I don't know, creative, better experience for me. So I am really happy with like technology that creates those better experiences plus the content. Have you used Hopin? I've not. I've attended events on Hopin though. Yeah, they look pretty cool. And I've used uh, Crowdcast quite a bit too, mm -hmm. particularly for events where you don't have more than six participants on screen. It's uh, it's really good. But yeah, Hopin's raised gazillion bucks <laughs> yep. and they you know they got a, a great team over there so shout out to uh to both hopin and crowdcast speaking yeah, of fun. conferences i know one of the things that hopin allows you to do is this virtual booth experience now virtual booths i've heard some mixed reviews i don't think people have really nailed it i think there's enough uh, opportunity out there for folks like yourself and other strategists to really dive in and, and figure out like the virtual booth uh, strategy. Like how do you sort of approach that? Like what should folks be doing around their virtual booth strategy? And how do they, of course, we love demos here, right? And demos are a, uh, an integral part of that virtual booth experience. Certainly when we were offline, you know, you would go and have a demo on the, you know, on the screen or you show a demo in person as a sales rep, how, uh, so I guess two parts to my question, like how should we be thinking about virtual booth strategies? And then also how do we integrate product demos into this virtual booth experience? Yeah, uh, so I would totally agree with your first statement and saying that nobody's really cracked the code when it comes to virtual booths. I think it's an incredibly hard thing. Um, and yeah, I guess that I'll just kind of leave that out there because I guess I really have nothing more to add for that one. Um, unfortunately, other than I look forward to seeing virtual booths that actually do work well um, and a lot of people actually attending and engaging with virtual booths. Uh, for including demos, I think it's really interesting. And what I would challenge and say that you actually maybe don't necessarily need a demo for a virtual booth maybe what you need is a product tour because you can do and i'm kind of i got inspired i'll be honest uh by reprise and say that if you do product tours you can have your persona based one and depending on what data you get as people enter your booth or not you may be able to say like oh so and so who just entered my booth is a cfo for example and great, I'm gonna grab our VP of finance and CFO persona-based product tour, drop it in the chat and say, hey, here's our product tour that you can go through if you'd like to see how our product and CFOs work together at the organizations that we partner with. 
And then from there, you get a more qualified meeting if the CFO does it. And then it's like, yes, I want to learn more about this because our CMO is also here and they kind of dragged me to it. Or our CMO may be really interested in it. And from what I can tell, it really hits all my boxes coming from that CFO kind of role. Um, and then the third point I would say is one that I recently heard from Kate Adams, formerly VP of Marketing at Drift and now SVP of Marketing at Validity. Um, she shared while well, on a virtual event that Drift actually was going after speaking engagements, not really booth sponsorships because they were seeing so much more of an ROI tied to those speaking engagements. And then from my point of view, you can do so much more because you can say, we did a 25 minute session at whatever conference. And for example, let's just say Kate was speaking. And then you can say as Drift, we're gonna put on a 30 minute to an hour AMA session with Kate because she's already our employee and say, and invite people who attended that event as well as those who didn't and just say, hey, ask Kate your questions on this topic. And it's just a casual conversation and leave it at that. Like that's another form of content. You get so much out of it. So, and it really allows you to drive your authoritative voice um, within your space. So I would say that maybe speaking engagements for at least right now, until the code is cracked on virtual boost, maybe that's the way people should go, really. Awesome, awesome. Wow, I, I love that. Uh, there were so many gems there. I think the, the, th the piece that really resonated with me was I was envisioning you going to, let's say the virtual booth experience, and instead of submit a, you know, there's a graphic or a video or whatever, submit, submit a request for a demo and then you get that. Yeah, that's, that's kind of lame. There were two experiences that came to mind. The first one was ha having actually a live human sitting there, right, demoing and, and answering questions, right? So a sub stream, let's say, right? That, so that's one. And then the other one was the persona-based product tours that you mentioned, right? So I envisioned asking a question or being able to understand who that user is already through some sort of like single sign-on or something, mm -hmm. right? Where you're able to identify the via the title, et cetera, uh, of that user visiting the, the virtual booth and then being able to surface a uh, certain options like okay do you want to see this uh this product tour right and then click through right so the, the the easier one i think is obviously if you could do this programmatically is like we know that they're a cfo so we end up showing them the cfo uh, product tour that they can click on or maybe it's embedded so it's automatically showing them what's relevant right so that's hop in and folks check mm -hmm. you know take this uh idea um and and then show them the product tour right and the, if they're a you know i don't know vp of marketing then show them at a sales tech show them one that's relevant so those are the the two examples that came to mind as you were discussing the the 
this virtual booth experience that uh, that might be better than what I'm seeing out there. And again, yeah, I've heard from everyone. It's just like not working. Nobody gives a shit, et cetera. Right. Because, you know, if you think about it, like imagine if you just had like a uh, at a traditional in person conference, if you had a booth or a, a vendor space that it just had images, no humans pulling people in. Right. No one would do anything. Right. Like part of the experience is that you have these humans who are sitting there, you know, pulling folks in, showing them demos, engaging with them. And there's a whole strategy around that, you know, of course, a.k.a. field marketing. So thanks for sharing that. If you were to think about like how B2B marketers um, should be approaching their product demo uh, experience here in 2021 and how they can better support sales teams with demos, well, what advice or tips would you give those folks? Yeah, I would imagine a world in which kind of there are four main things. Uh, the first is make it super easy and frictionless to get to the demo, kind of that customer experience or call it prospect experience, whatever you, whatever label you want to throw on it. But I think as long as you make it easy, there's always going to be a higher chance of people actually taking it before they ever get to some other point where they're going to say no because people want to see what they're even looking at i think i'm a big fan of like show me i don't want to like go on a discovery call i want to see your product and be like does this kind of hit at least some of the major check boxes that i want if not awesome i'm going to stay and i'll answer your questions happily for like an hour just so i can like keep moving forward with this tool that i like but if it's not a tool that i like I'm out and I'll just be like, thank you for not like wasting my time. Thank you. And like, I'm so happy that I didn't waste any more of your time. So now you can focus on other deals that are better for your company. Two is short bite-sized demos are best personally for like attention span um, or product tours. So I would say maybe they almost look different in terms of it's like, a demo of specific areas of your platform instead of the huge like here's our platform from a to z maybe you just go uh a through c and then d through f etc 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 in like little bite-sized chunks so it's almost becomes i'm going to say bingeable content similar to like netflix or um other experiences like that and then in the demos make sure to show the value or aha moment extremely clearly and emphasize it whether it's through the reports that you can generate the new insights the actions that people will be able to take just drive that value um and then persona based ones kind of going back to what i've mentioned earlier is just because there are buying committees that's just a fact nowadays so whether you're the third person on the buying committee or you're the CFO, CMO, whomever, um, it doesn't really matter who you are on the committee as long as you have demos that speak to the people who you typically engage with on those committees because it's really hard to convince a CFO to sign off if the product demo that they just got is really meant for the VP of marketing or CMO which may be different than what the CRO or chief sales officer cares about, about, excuse me, versus different than what a revenue operations leader cares about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So you just have to be really tailored. I think and that comes back to that human level of connection. Well, yes, it's maybe not personalized because you have to figure out a way to do your demos at scale, of course. You can still at least be a little bit more tailored around at least the personas that you speak to and say, even if you're working with a gatekeeper, just be like, here's a link to the demos for these types of people that we typically see on our deals. Let, please forward along to the appropriate people internally. Let me know if you have any questions right there and then you can get all those data and analytics on the back end hopefully watching various people within that organization watch and engage those with those demos what's your take on this like whole product-led growth movement like there's so much around it it feels like sales development be the beginning of that and, and particularly like abm as well right so that like ABM was kind of put or integrated into the entire you know revenue stack. So you had account-based marketing, account-based sales development, account-based sales, account-based you know CS, you know all those sort of stuff. And you're starting to see the same thing in um, you know with this whole product-led movement. Like, what does that look like also for mid-market and enterprise companies? Because we've typically approached uh, the whole self-service thing or product-led thing for the bottom of the markets, you know, yeah. SMB space. Yeah, I would say that for one, I'm all for product-led growth. I think that it's extremely powerful to lead with your product, just because at least for me, when I'm a buyer and I'm evaluating tools, I, as I said earlier, I love to get my hands on it. I know exactly what I want the tool to look like. I know exactly what I want the tool to do for me, hopefully, uh, assuming I'm an educated buyer for that actual tool, or I need a lot of education. Um, but I at least have a great idea of what I like to use in terms of the design. If the tool to me does not fit into like the design aesthetics that I like, it's really hard for me to get passionate because all I'm gonna think about is great, this tool is gonna add value, but I'm gonna really dislike looking at it, especially if it's like an everyday type of tool. If it was a monthly tool, maybe it becomes more manageable, but if I'm looking at something daily, weekly, and it just like doesn't do anything for me and doesn't create any emotion, or if it even worse makes me like upset or frustrated that I have to look at something that I don't want to look at, that's kind of hard for me to get over. Um, but I think the big key with product-led growth is coupling it with a customer experience-first mindset or pro prospect-first mindset and really making sure that the product is there as well as the experience. Because think about it. If you're company A, for example, and company A has a great product, but they have a horrible experience, and then you have company B that says, we have a great product, equally great as company A, but they have a phenomenal experience. Which one would you buy or at least evaluate further? You would never want to like, enter into a contract or a relationship with a vendor and know that what you're going to get is frustrating and painful experiences all the time. That's just not how I think relationships can really be built or at least it's very quickly how it can be built, sure, but it's equally gonna be the death of that relationship 
Um, so I think that there's that tactic or strategy. I would next say be like Pendo and literally have the product tour on their homepage, like right at the top, smack dab, super easy to get to. It's impossible to miss. It's pretty, takes up a good amount of real estate on there. Um, and just watch the numbers go from there. Really, they've seen a lot of success uh, from what I've heard. And I have to imagine that if Pendo is doing something, they're doing it for a reason. They don't really, and a lot of other companies, this is kind of my mindset around bigger companies at a certain stage. They don't do things just for kicks and like gigs. They have a very specific like tactic with very specific business outcomes that they're looking to drive. And of course, yes, they're testing stuff. Everybody's testing but there's an intention behind it. So usually companies like Appendo, Gong, Drift, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they're onto something. So I would say, look at leaders, even if they're outside of your space and see what they're doing and say, hey, if Pendo is doing this in that space, how can we do it in our space, which is maybe B2B SaaS, but for cybersecurity? It's pretty different than Pendo, yeah. But if nobody else is doing what Pendo is kind of doing in cybersecurity, you just became super different by having a product tour on your homepage that people can engage with. And then they can make more informed questions uh, that they have. They can opt in or out faster of moving forward with your product. And then kind of the last piece I would say is be different. And I mean this in terms of maybe you think about these product tours um, or demos that are created by your company and think about it more like content, that it needs to have a demo library on your site with air, like showcasing the different areas of your platform that are very specific to either a specific use case, a specific part of it, maybe a key integration. If it's a CRM and market automation platform, and you want to see the integration between those two, that's really important for any marketer or revenue leader nowadays. So actually showing people how it works, not only to set it up, but then also the value that you get and the fields that uh, sync both ways, all those other kinds of elements, that becomes extremely valuable. And then it helps people check off a box on their checklist when they're buying. So I would say be creative too, in terms of how you view a demo, demo is not necessarily just a demo or a product tour to me i think anymore i think it's now content that people can engage with from marketing perspective at least that's how i'd look at it awesome joe i gotta say this has been super fun and uh you're crushing it like as i hear you speak i can feel the passion and expertise and you're very thoughtful and so we appreciate that one last question here of course i should do a little drum roll. Um, if you were to think about a tip that, you know, B2B leaders out there can, particularly on the revenue, revenue side, uh, can implement to improve the conversion rate between demo and trial, what would that tip be? Yeah, uh, I've kind of harped on it a little bit earlier and throughout this, but I'll say it one last time. It's going to be frictionless make it a frictionless customer experience. Um, and I look at this from the prospect first kind of mindset or viewpoint saying, 
what can I do as a company to make it as easy as possible for the prospect to say yes? Literally, that was the call to action I got for a virtual event recently in a marketing email. And that was the easiest call to action I've ever had. And since then, I've kind of just changed my mindset of like, what can we do to literally make the answer be yes? Three letters that someone has to type, the shortest amount of things, and then we can do more work because we're getting something so valuable. And whether it's simply just getting a business email and enriching it just to view the demo, set up the trial. When you do a trial, is there something that you can do which is plug and play so or pre-built so they don't already have to then make all their own integrations and set up their data the way it should be and everything in the platform. Maybe there's a out of this box and say, if you have HubSpot, for example, you just hit this button and it'll populate HubSpot data, for example, and you can now see what it looks like with that HubSpot integration. If you have Marketo, here's the Marketo one. And you just hit a little button and like it populates and creates it for you. So things that take the pain out of trials and demos and removing them and then saying like, how can we make this better and easier would be my personal ways that I would say. Um, and then also the last point is just like, make it easy also to ask questions because people have questions naturally, whether it's in a demo or a trial, um, whether it's usage or product or pricing or whatever other questions, or maybe it's product roadmap. Um, people wa wanna know answers and they wanna be able to say like, have a way to communicate, I guess, with people or that company that's offering this demo or trial in an easy way, right when they kind of have that spark. And that's almost when they're high intent too. think about it. They're on a demo or a trial and they're now asking a question because they're curious about something. They're curious, just kind of equally like what we want sales reps to be. We want them to be curious to uncover things in a discovery call and throughout the buying process. That's essentially what this prospect is doing. You're uncovering things about your company. So they're qualifying you right now to help make an informed decision from their perspective. So you would never want to have a contact us button 20 pages deep on your website that's almost impossible for you to, anyone to find. So it's the same point of make it easy for prospects to engage with your company everywhere they are so they can get their questions answered to help either move the deal forward and see if there's really something substantive there or just end it and be polite and know that they tried, they looked, it just wasn't a good fit. And that's perfectly okay because not everybody is gonna be a perfect fit for your company, even if on paper, according to your personas and your ICP and everything else, that they should be. Sometimes there are other things that people just prefer or like or don't like or other factors. And that's what I would end up with for that point. Awesome, Joel, thank you so, so much. We went over, you were just spitting so much fire. I was like, this is awesome. We're just gonna let Joel just continue to, uh, to crush it. If, uh, if folks wanna follow you on social media, consume your content, your posts like great yeah. updates on, on uh, you know, certainly LinkedIn, it, would LinkedIn be the best channel to follow you or reach you? I know you're also on Twitter. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. What are the good so yeah, the, uh, I would the say actual both handles? And Twitter are my preferred channels. Yep. Awesome. What uh, Ooh, what usernames um, can they Twitter? follow? Yeah. Uh, J Premac twenty five. Yeah. Uh, so J and then my last name Premac and then twenty five is my Twitter, and then just Joel Premac on LinkedIn. Awesome, Joel. Have a great great afternoon, and uh, we'll hope hope to see you soon. Likewise. Thank you so much, George. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you.